Welcome to episode 117 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up this week? Okay. Okay, you know, uh, happy happy Earth Day as we are recording this, and uh, happy belated Earth Day to those who observe on Friday. So I'm just relishing the Earth. <laughs> sure, and uh, happy Dodgers Padres round two to everyone else who uh, is excited about that. To those who to those who observe. <laughs> yes, been an interesting week, Dan. Uh, a little bit going on here. So what do you say we uh, kick it right into headlines? Bring it on. <laughs> Up first, the cast for Marvel's Disney's Secret Invasion is starting to take shape with Game of Thrones veteran Amelia Clark and The Crown's Olivia Colman joining previously announced stars Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn. And in other casting news, Hedwig and the Angry Inch Tony winner John Cameron Mitchell will play Joe Exotic and star opposite Kate McKinnon in NBC Universal's Tiger King limited series. And by limited, it means I have limited interest in this series. <laughs> Fair. Over at Amazon, this is worth noting from it's a, a, a story from late last week, but the retail giant's highly anticipated Lord of the Rings will cost an eye popping $465 million for its first season, according to the New Zealand government's Official Information Act filing. Yeah, I'm going to say that again one more time just uh, to let it sink in. $465 million for one season of television. And we don't even know how many episodes it's going to be. My understanding is that that figure includes the acquisition of the rights. So I don't that know that anyone really knows what that figure entails, <laughs> because we reported that the, the rights alone were north of two. $150 million just for global rights alone to the property. But that's still an awful lot for one season of, of television. Usually those rights, you, you amortize the cost over the life of the series so that this first season drops down, et cetera. The show's already been renewed for season two. I think it's already, you know, the plan is for five seasons and a spinoff. So are they trying to amortize that cost over, are they going to shoot seasons two, one and two back to back? And this is quote unquote, one season of television that stretches over into two seasons of, of television. And, and, and the budget is that for two full seasons. I, I don't know, but either way, that is an eye popping number. And if it does include global rights, even if you take out that 250 it's still a crazy amount of money it's still like more than more than double the cost of what a season of game of thrones would, would cost it's astounding it is a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of money for a show which has no costly above the line talent it's not like the 850 people who are starring in that show are making a million dollars per episode they are all being paid one would presume a reasonable amount. Let's just say a, a, a non-impressive amount because they're not stars. Yeah, you're not spending this money on cast. You're spending this money on, on rights and production sets and costumes and and the global rights like we talked about. You know, like it's yeah, this this number doesn't make any sense to me. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Over at Stars, the premium cable network has greenlit the horror comedy Shining Veil starring Courtney Cox and Greg Kinnear. Ava DuVernay is getting into the animation business and is re-teaming with Netflix to adapt beloved fantasy book series Wings of Fire for the streamer. And in other Netflix pickups, Edgar Ramirez will star in drama series Florida Man from executive producer Jason Bateman. And mother-daughter dramedy Ginny and Georgia has been renewed for a second season. Speaking of Netflix and 
We're going to do that for a little bit here, at least. The streamer also announced this week that the third season of Master of None will return in May. And, you know, we kind of teased that back in episode 115 when we were doing a mailbag uh, segment about the comedy series Emmy Conversation. And we kind of alluded to uh, a previous nominee quietly prepping a return. It was Master of None, and if you didn't get those uh, those little breadcrumbs. And wrapping up this week, Netflix also reported its first quarter earnings and fell short of its subscriber additions, adding less than 4 million worldwide during the first three months of 2021. The first quarter also marked the first time that Netflix lost U.S. subscribers in more than eight years. The company said that that's the impact of COVID slowed production pipeline, which you can kind of refer back to our conversations about February and March and television kind of being the doldrums there and the result of the production lags. So the streamer also announced uh, that it would spend, speaking of eye-popping numbers, Dan, $17 billion on content this year. That's up from $11.8 billion, which was slowed by the pandemic in 2020, and still up from the $13.9 billion Netflix spent in 2019. So one more time for the cheap seats, $17 billion Netflix will spend on content this year. <laughs> and to make up that difference, Netflix is going to crack down on people sharing passwords. And that's a lot of sharing passwords you're going to have to uh, crack down on in order to make a $17 billion production budget. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, who's surprised? The The production no. numbers have been have been mind boggling for Netflix the entire time. And so pretty much really and truly business as usual. Yes. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, the 93rd Academy Awards will be presented Sunday night and the telecast on ABC. Joining us to preview what to expect from the in-person ceremony is THR's senior awards analyst and the great awards chatter host and friend of the five, Scott Feinberg. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Good, good. How are you guys? Looking forward to the Oscars, apparently. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> That kind of came out of nowhere. Um, you know, so uh, I mean, not if you read THR, but anyway, you know, so let's let's start at the top here. So the show is going to be held at Union Station here in L.A. and masks will not be required. What do we know about the show so far? It's definitely a, a weird situation this year because, yes, the primary venue is still in L.A. at Union Station, as you say, uh, in an outdoor area surrounded by two courtyards. Um, with one-third of the people who are there um, set to be rotated into the main room and then into a courtyard at different thirds of the show so that the room doesn't become that full. And yet it's a priority of the producers, Steven Soderbergh, Stacey Scherer, and Jesse Collins, that it looked like a you know kind of relaxed, non-COVID thing. And so while the, while... The show is on the air, at least at the Union Station venue. The people will not be required to wear masks. And um, that is apparently possible because they are categorizing this as a film or TV production, meaning that, you know, it's that's why you've probably heard them going on and on about this is this is a it's going to be just like a movie. And they're introducing their presenters as members of the cast and all of that. So. Look, we'll see how that all pans out. Hopefully, uh, I, I think they feel comfortable taking that position because if you want to attend in person this year, the Academy will have actually done their own COVID test of you at least three times. They're going to temperature check you when you get there. Um, but look, the optics of a bunch of Hollywood people sitting around without masks at a time when everyone else is being told to wear masks and 
you know, take it seriously. It's it's going to get blowback, but you have to live and learn, I guess. And uh, there is one of the same producers of the Oscars who was a producer of the Grammys, which was the only other live in-person award show since the pandemic. And that is just that person's Jesse Collins, who also did the Super Bowl halftime show during the pandemic. So I guess he's, you know, had more experience than anyone else would have, you know, preparing for something like this. So I I hope his his judgment and the other two, Steven Soderbergh and Stacey Shares, is good. Um, but we will see. You mentioned the common talking point for the past couple of weeks, which has been it will look like a movie. And I saw some quote where they're like, the actors will effectively be playing heightened versions of themselves or something. Can you make any sense out of the blather that we've been getting about how this is going to look like a movie? There's a lot of weirdness about all of this. I um, look normally one of the most apparently like talked about viewed portions of the show is are the musical are the performances of the songs. And yet those are not even going to be part of the main telecast this year. Those are pre-recorded and they're going to be played during the during the pre-show. So that's not going to be part of the show. They say they're going to give more time for the people to speak with acceptance speeches, but they're still telling them only one person, you know, if a group of you win, only one person can do that. I think a lot of the what they're trying to do, they've pre-interviewed all the nominees to try to get a little backstory of their journey and then they are intending to integrate that into the presenters scripts which may be more extensive than past presenters because they have chosen not to have a host again for the third year in a row which if ever you needed a host it feels like this would probably be a year for that in my opinion but we'll see i mean apparently start it all started with steven soderbergh writing a sort of manifesto about what this show would look like and um we will see. In the past, when people have tried to reinvent the format of the Oscars, it has not gone great. But I hope to be wrong. I guess there's a lot of reinvention that's probably inherent in just trying to do it this year under the COVID circumstances. How many people are actually going to be in the room? Do we have any sense of that? You said the one-third, one-third, yeah. one-third thing. So but. apparently in the Union Station venue, which is for anybody who can get to L.A., that is going to be about 170 people total, not in the room at one time, but I believe that's counting nominees and their plus ones who are the only people, along with the presenters, who will be there. Uh, much to our dismay, they have chosen not to even have a small pool of reporters present for what is supposedly a historic event. We had suggested people who are fully vaccinated and cover your BS all year round, uh, you might want to accommodate if you want that to continue, but uh, that did not work. There are also going to be other venues, though, this year to accommodate. Originally, the plan was you either get there and you're in L.A. in person or you're not going to be part of the show, which did not go over well for people in parts of the world that are completely shut down still because of the pandemic. And so there's going to be a hub in London, a hub in Paris, perhaps a few others where there are clusters of people like South Africa, where the My Octopus Teacher people are largely based. but And then if there is someone who's very old and unwilling to chance it, as there are a few nominees uh, this year who fit that description, I believe that they will accommodate them via kind of either Zoom or a personal recording kit that's a higher-end Zoom, because they their whole thing, again, is, oh, it must all look like a uniform well-produced movie so that the sets in London and Paris and 
LA are going to look uniform and stuff like that. They didn't want somebody just popping up on Zoom. But again, I think people are willing to make accommodations for that sort of thing in during a global pandemic. What they are not looking forward to and what the Globes got slammed for and certain others is uh, just a show that is not generally coherent. Um, and, you know, with basic technical problems like the first acceptance speech of the Golden Globes, Daniel Kaluuya was was not even audible. So I don't it, it's hard to know if they're handling this correctly. No, but as you as you mentioned, the the Grammys were a fairly well run telecast. So, you know, having a producer carry over from that, at least to my mind, is a helpful thing. The Grammys were kind of a best case scenario of how to do this. Yeah, a small outdoor, essentially cocktail party format of, you know, much closer to the sort that the Oscars were in their infant years than they've ever been for ever since they moved to auditoriums from from banquet settings. So, you know, they can argue it's a return to tradition, but we'll see. So what about the actual tone of the show? I, I believe I read a couple of interviews and, and the word that keeps sticking out to me is joyous. Is that I mean, so no one's going to get made fun of this year is what you're saying, especially now without a host. But what can you know? What do we know about the tone of the show aside yeah, from I mean, the covid stuff? Soderbergh's also used the word earnest a lot. I I think they want to make this a and they're also emphasizing that, look, people who are below the line contributors, meaning the people whose names you don't know, it's equally their night and they want to show you why they belong. You know, the producers want to show you why they belong there as much as anyone. And, you know, it's an admirable aim. But the reality is people zone out on TV unless it's someone they've ever heard of. And um, they're going to try to over, they're going to try to combat that. Maybe we'll, maybe they'll be the first to succeed. We'll see. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're they're trying to make it a celebration of the movies and people who make movies and all of that. But we are still in the middle of a pandemic. I've heard there may be a tribute to first responders uh, of some sort, which would sort of make sense. And that that they may be the reason that there's something going on at the Dolby, that they would be there. But then again, it's almost weird to, hey, we want you at the Oscars, but not where anybody who's actually nominated for the Oscars is this year. But I, I, again, that's their problem. They're the producers. <laughs> <laughs> this year, this year we've put first responders at the, uh, at the Dolby theater in Hollywood and Highland. Sorry, we're not validating parking. Yeah, right, right. You're on your <laughs> yeah, own. it's like $25 a park. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's actually talk about the awards themselves. Um, to, to me, at least in theory, We've had all of the various precursors at this point. It, it feels probably like it's a somewhat more open than normal year. Like I would say probably Chloe Zhao and Daniel Kaluuya feel like locks, but otherwise not so much. So does that sound I right? I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, the lead actor race, Chadwick Boseman, the late Chadwick Boseman had won everything up until the BAFTA Awards where it went for Anthony Hopkins, which gave people a little pause because the BAFTA Awards have predicted certain other sort of out of the blue Oscar results. Granted, BAFTA has not had a great track record when it comes to actors of color. And so they also have uh, obviously maybe predisposed to picking Anthony Hopkins of the UK. But I, I don't think it's out of the question that something could happen there. The Academy's become a much more international 
group over the last few years. And so I still think the smart money is on Chadwick Boseman to win. Uh, I would, but I would not rule out something crazy going on there. Uh, lead actress is the craziest because you've had all of the precursors go for different people. You had BAFTA go for Francis McDormand for Nomadland. You had the Golden Globe go to Andrew Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday. SAG went for Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And uh, Venice Film Festival, earliest on, went for Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman. And then Carrie Mulligan won the Critics' Choice Award for Promising Young Woman. So it's sort of a crapshoot. I think that my own feeling is that there have been fewer of these movies actually watched widely this year. And so the winner probably more likely come from one of the movies that has been widely seen. And when you look at that category, that would probably mean Francis McDormand or Carrie Mulligan, whose movies are nominated for best picture. Um, unlike the others, you know, the argument against Francis McDormand is that she's previously already won twice, most recently three years ago. Um, but I'm not sure that that is something that most Academy members keep in the back of their mind or that would sway their vote. And so we'll see there. I, I that's going to be a tight one. Supporting actress maybe is looking in the late home stretch a little less tight. Where Yu Jung Yoon, the grandmother in Minari, who is considered the Meryl Streep of Korea, she uh, won both SAG and BAFTA, which are two of the strongest predictors. You've still got, you know, uh, Amanda Seyfried for Mank there, which is the most nominated movie. If it's going to win anywhere, it might be uh, there or for production design. Um, you've got Maria Bakalova for the Borat sequel and she's very good. I just don't know if people are quite ready to give her an Oscar for her first performance in a movie they've, they've really seen, but it could be. Then you've got Glenn Close who, uh, and, and Olivia Coleman, who just, uh, I believe two years ago had a face off where Olivia Coleman shocked Glenn Close. Uh, this year, Olivia Coleman's back with the father, Glenn Close with the horrendous hillbilly elegy. And yet uh, you could see a repeat of that dynamic where, can you imagine, you, you would have Olivia Coleman winning a second Oscar over Glenn Close before Glenn Close wins one? It could happen. Glenn Close is now the most nominated female performer without an Oscar in uh, the history of the Academy Awards. This is her eighth. Um, I think it's possible she could pull off an upset, but the, the, definitely the smart money is on Yu Jung Yoon. So if you were to pick uh, one surprise from the show, one surprise winner, what's your guess? I mean, so my picks are Bozeman, McDormand, with a very slight edge over Mulligan, uh, Kaluuya, and Yoon. So I would not be, it would not be my personal prediction, but I think if something crazy happened, it might very well be Anthony Hopkins, in which case it's going to be very awkward because, uh, you know, he's won before. Chadwick's never going to have another chance. But, you know, at the same time, there are many people, uh, perhaps even on the Zoom, who feel that it shouldn't matter whether you've won or not in the past. It's who gave the best performance. And there's no denying Anthony Hopkins gave a great performance. So um, it's just going to be really tough with if that happens with Chadwick's widow in attendance, ready to give a speech, having given a speech everywhere else except the BAFTA Awards. So that'll be awkward if that happens. And just as a last question, because we have you on and because it transitions into our next topic, with everything that's been happening with the HFPA in recent weeks, 
what would you say the odds are that the Golden Globes actually air on NBC next year? It's a great question. I think it's 50-50 right now. I, I, not to be a, not to cop out, but they're, they're, where their situation is, I don't know how much more you're going to get into this, but the latest is that they're, they brought in to put out the fire of the revelation that they had no black members among their then 87, now 86, due to the resignation of a racist member. Uh, they're, they're, they brought in the fixer, Judy Smith, who inspired Olivia Pope on Scandal, and they brought in a USC professor who specializes in diversity and inclusion. These were going to be the people that were going to give them cover and advise them to get them out of this mess. And this week, both of them separately resigned, citing the basically uh, unsalvageability of the situation where that the HFPA is not willing to make the self-critical changes that would need to happen in order to appease the rest of the film community. And so when the fixer is leaving, that's not a good sign. Their own publicists look like they'll be next uh, to drop them. And so given that they have a May 6th deadline to show Time's Up and the PR community that they've gotten it and made major substantive changes, I don't know that they're going to make that deadline uh, or any deadline with those changes. And, and And at that point, what happens, I think, is that Time's Up and or the PR firms basically cut the, cut them off, uh, say we're boycotting you, essentially, or our talent is boycotting you. And then what does NBC and Dick Clark Productions do? It's not going to look good for them to proceed in spite of that. And so I would guess that there is a way for them to avoid their agreement with the HFPA and just drop the globes from the air. Again, this is all if the HFPA doesn't have a revelation and decide to make some of the major changes to save themselves that they've been asked to make. And so potentially they would go off the air as they were the last time they got in deep trouble with the network for, for doing bad things. And, and then the question just becomes, what are the golden globes without talent and a broadcasting partner? Uh, you know, they will not self dissolve. Uh, so they might still proceed as at least give the appearance of proceeding, you know, do their own, little luncheon and announce their nominees and announce their winners. Uh, but they will be a very different organization if that, if it comes to that and uh, something else may be brought in by NBC and or Dick Clark productions to fill that void, you know, which is a, it is an important marketing tool for studios looking to get award season traction. And so uh, it's not, there's going to be something there. It's just a question of whether or not it's the globes. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but thank you so much for joining us, Scott. And as always, listen to the Awards Chatter podcast. It's pretty terrific. Thank you guys for having me. Yours is as well. Number two. And as you just heard us discuss up next, we're going to talk more about the Golden Globes in crisis mode again. As you heard Scott say, crisis manager Judy Smith and diversity and inclusion advisor Dr. Sean Harper walked away from the HFPA this week. The moves were the latest fallout to result from the February LA Times report that found the organization responsible for the Globes had zero black members. Time's up and more than 100 PR firms have threatened to cut off the HFPA unless the organization makes real changes. So yeah, you just heard Scott discuss the fallout and what could potentially happen. But yeah, all eyes right now are on uh, Sunshine Sachs, which is the HFPA's longtime PR firm, and the law firm uh, as well that reps the, uh, the same 
that reps the awards group uh, that were hired in March to review the HFPA's policies. So that's the last two t- uh, Hollywood ties to the HFPA right now. So yeah, Dan, this is, I, I don't know how you fix this other than, you know, if you've got one of the best fixers, someone who inspired their own successful TV show and someone who specializes in diversity and, and inclusion who have come in and say, we can fix you. And then they're like, yeah, no, we can't. Uh-uh, absolutely not. And then they leave. I don't know what, what uh, this means for a group of what 86 uh, foreign journalists and what, and how you fixed this relationship. And I think that the, how you fix it at a certain point ceases to be the question. And the question really becomes why and put in a different word way what is the point to fixing it? What is it that is of value about this award show, about this telecast, about the ties to this organization that NBC would see any purpose in salvaging it? You just heard Scott talk about what is ultimately really and truly the only reason, and that is it's a very, very valuable promotional platform. That is what it is. Now, whether you think NBC should be in legion with an ethically compromised, uh, not particularly inclusive group of quote-unquote pseudo-journalists in order to give Hollywood a reach-around is something that I don't, I don't get. Like, what, the way, the point I've reached on this is something is obviously very horribly broken and has been for years. Well, NBC has allowed this thing to be broken for years. NBC has kept paying this organization year after year after year because it was good for commercial opportunities and because it drew a certain audience. And this year's show drew a much smaller audience, but still drew an audience that for NBC has value. I'm tired of simply saying the HFPA is awful and an embarrassment because of course they are. No one is going to disagree with this at that point, at this point. But I think NBC has to take some responsibility for what they have allowed to happen and what they have paid for to happen for years and years and years. And the responsibility at a certain point becomes one where you say, What do we think we are salvaging here? What do we think we are fixing? If at the end of the day, the HFPA, that rhymes, brings in 13 black members. Which was the recommendation of the diversity and inclusion advisor who subsequently uh, quit after a meeting with Time's Up and various other members, including Ava DuVernay and, and Shonda Rhimes. But even if you bring in those 13 black members, what have you fixed What have you accomplished? You've made a fake group of pseudo-journalists more inclusive, and that is good on its face, but it does not solve the problem that this is a wildly ethically compromised group uh, that is horribly entrenched. We saw this week with the resignation of their longtime president, who was already a gross embarrassment. This was the person Brendan Fraser accused of groping him at a Golden Globe ceremony, making him not want to be a part of the Hollywood community anymore. And this person just continued after that to be a member of this organization for years and years. An eight-time president of this organization. 
Eight times. And at no point did NBC, after reading any of those stories, because they were widely reported, Brandon Fraser did interviews, the guy wrote an autobiography where he said that he thought it was a joke and he was sorry if it was taken the other way or something to that effect. At no point did NBC, while cutting tens of millions of dollars of checks to the organization, say, we are paying you tens of millions of dollars, remove this person who is an embarrassment to this thing that we pay tens of millions of dollars for. NBC has to take some responsibility, and NBC has taken no responsibility to fix this situation. NBC did finally this week step in and say, and, you know, push them to get rid of this one member. Great. Literally the least they could do. And we should probably note here, the Golden Globe Awards ceremony is produced by Dick Clark Productions, a division of MRC, which is a co-owner of The Hollywood Reporter through a joint venture with Penske Media titled PMRC. So there's our disclaimer. But yeah, go ahead, Dan. You know, this is, <laughs> you know, it, it, it feels, I mean, what took so long? You know, I think we said this, you know, a few episodes ago when the first Times report uh, dropped in, in February. But this is, you know, when you look at their nominations and you look at what they this this group does, I mean, what was the, there was a, that story a few years ago that like Lady Gaga was doing private performances for Golden Globe members, family or for someone's like birthday, you know, to, a, as a way to help promote her season of American Horror Story with with the HFPA, which is just like that. It's mind boggling, you know, but it's also that's what this group does. That's what that, you know, I mean, and that's it's it's so rampant that it's become a running joke. It's like the, the town's worst kept secret. And yet we're pumping money into it and, and, and legitimizing it and saying these are this is an important marketing thing. Well, I mean, so are commercials and, and ads on websites and, you know, th things that don't actually accept payola, you know, I mean. Yeah, well, basically what NBC has determined over the years is that allowing Ricky Gervais to make jokes about the organization was their version of of sanctioning the organization because there's no evidence that NBC took any sanctioning action against the HFPA at any point previously. So what they said was, well, at least we're acknowledging this is a joke and everyone's in on the joke, so ha, ha, ha. No, find something else. Fix it. Do something Fix yourself. Else. But at this point, again, there's no point in fixing it. So... Do something else. Seriously, get the casting crew of the various Dick Wolf shows to vote on their favorite TV shows and movies each year. The the Golden Wolfies. I changed that from what was in my head two seconds ago, which was the Golden Dicks. So anyway, oh. we're going to go with the Golden Wolfies. Damn. And have all of the Chicago shows and Law and & Order shows vote. Everyone knows that they're on the payroll of NBC, so it's not like anyone can be like, oh, my, payola. No, they're being paid by NBC. They are a far more legitimate organization, a far more representative organization, a far more inclusive organization. They're already in-house. Sure, who wouldn't want to come see an annual show hosted by Chris Maloney and Mariska Hargitay giving celebrities awards? It would be every bit as legitimate as the Golden Globes and more so and significantly less embarrassing. And it, it would promote shows on broadcast, which, exactly. the, which the Golden Globes doesn't do anyway. Yeah, truly, it is time for NBC to move on because bringing this show back again would be beyond cynical because it's already been cynical for decades that they kept putting this on knowing that everybody knew it was an utter joke. It is time to do away with that particular piece of cynicism, cut the HFPA loose, move on, find an alternative, build it yourself, 
there should not be another Golden Globes telecast involving the HFPA on NBC, and anyone asked to host it should say no, because everyone should know this is a dumb, embarrassing thing, and we've put up with it for too long. Yeah, and I, just to state some facts here, so why does the, why has NBC carried this for so long? Well, we've we've talked a lot on, on TV's Top Five about how um, award shows like the Golden Globes and the Oscars usually do very very well because they're considered like sports a live tune in, something you absolutely have to watch live to be of the moment um, or risk getting spoiled, etc. And this is. In the past few years, uh, obviously, we, we have seen linear viewership for award shows just completely tumble. And I think a big part of the, the question facing the Oscars this year, too, which we didn't get into in our first segment there, but, you know, the, like, you know, Scott kind of touched on it. Most people probably haven't seen a lot of the movies that are nominated. So the big question is, will the, will the ratings continue to hit low after low after low, which of course reflects how much these networks can charge for ad rates. So yeah, the N NBC's telecast of the Globes keeps going down. The ad rate that uh, that they can charge uh, probably has to be co correlated to that as well. So yeah, and now you're promoting it, you know, possibly promoting a return to of a show from an organization that is the, not credible in any way, shape or form. So yeah, there, there's a lot of, of things, but I can't say it any better than you just did, Dan. Number three. Up third, wait for it, How I Met Your Mother lives on. After at least three attempts, a sequel to the former hit CBS comedy How I Met Your Mother is coming to Hulu. The Disney back streamer has ordered 10 episodes of How I Met Your Father with Hilary Duff set to star. Leslie, you have been covering all of the various twists and turns in this, from the original incarnation, the Greta Gerwig incarnation, to the attempt to do it again as recently as five years ago, to what came to pass. Talk us through the different steps and what the version is that actually is going to come to Hulu. Well, I mean, it's basically the same thing. It's a gender flip take on how I met your mother. And this time it's it's Hillary Duff in, in, instead of, you know, taking on the, the Ted Mosby role, so to speak. And what's interesting about this is, at, you know, Isaac Apter and Elizabeth Berger, the showrunners of Hulu's Love, Simon Update, Love, Victor, who you can go back and listen to our interview with them from episode 74. Uh, they also serve as co-showrunners on NBC's This Is Us. They are shepherding the new take. They were previously atta attached to do a new take on this one. I think it was like four or five years ago and that kind of stalled. And then there was another take from a writer who worked on near the worst. And then of course there was the immediate take, at, you know, just as the final season, the ninth and final season of how I met your mother was airing on CBS. They were already trying to develop how I met your dad, which I know you hate that title and you're happy to that they fixed it to father. But at the same time that had the original creators, Craig Thomas and Carter Bays, as well as uh, sitcom veteran, Emily Spivey, who also worked on the flagship show attack. Greta Gerwig was going to star and write. And for whatever reason, that didn't go. There's a great report uh, from the time, I think it was 2014, that Joe Adalian, our friend of the five, Joe Adalian over at Vulture, wrote up about what he heard about why they passed. I remember Nina Tassler wanted the studio to reshoot it. This was at, at a time when CBS obviously didn't own it. The show is owned by 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox has now dropped the fox and is part of the Disney fold. Guess what? Disney says, hey, we've got this huge IP. Hey, we own Hulu. We know that the flagship How I Met Your Mother does really, really well on Hulu. 
let's greenlight the you know uh, the sequel. And we've got these two producers, Apter and Berger, who have experience writing this, and they can do a new draft, and we can control it, and we own it. So hurrah for IP lives again. And yeah, it, it's fascinating. And we should should note too that Carter Bays and Craig Thomas are attached at, to executive produce the news take, the How I Met Your uh, How I Met Your Father, alongside Aptaker and Berger. So. Not show running, but still involved. And in addition to all of those things you just mentioned, the various connections, you know, Hillary Duff just spent a, a pretty fair amount of time trying to get a Lizzie McGuire reboot started in the family. And all of the discussion was about how it was too mature for Disney Plus. And so I mean, rather than there's a great hashtag going around, uh, you know, it's hashtag let Lizzie F and um, you can use it. <laughs> We're a family friendly podcast, so you can imagine what uh, what what that stands for. But yeah, <laughs> can we imagine? But so yeah, so they so basically they took Hillary Duff from her young adult relationship New York type set Disney Plus show that was too mature and brought her over to Hulu with the showrunners of Love Victor, a show that was put into development at uh, Disney Plus and was viewed as too mature for Disney Plus and got moved to Hulu. So I'm kind of wondering if there are just somewhere Lizzie McGuire reboot scripts that someone is going to dust off and do a little fine change on several of the names. And, uh, and that's what this is going to be. So I mean, there's definitely a, a, a fan campaign for that going and saying, unless this is Lizzie McGuire wrapped in how I met your father. Thanks, but no thanks. But yeah, there's it. it it's crazy to watch the social media and this is obviously a small sample size but it, it's crazy to watch the, the response to this announcement on on social and see a people reject it based on the on the final season of how i met your mother b the lizzie mcguire diehards who like hillary wanted the show to move forward at hulu of course we should, should note that uh hillary duff herself said move this show to hulu just like you did with love uh, love victor which i mean you know they've got Captain America shield with blood dripping on it. And that's not too, too mature or too adult for Disney plus. And you've got, you know, all these Marvel shows that are violent on, on Disney plus, but God forbid you put a, a YA show about a coming, uh, you know, about a kid coming out in high school on the, on the family platform that also was home to star Wars. It, you know, we've, we talked about that a lot with the love Victor creators um, back on episode 74, but yeah, it, 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 it's a weird announcement to me because it's just, hey, we've got this library. This is going to live alongside it. It's the same strategy that literally every other streamer with a, a library is doing now. You know, we talked about it last week on the show uh, about Rutherford Falls, right? Here's the new show starring someone from The Office, from the creators who and producers who worked on the show that lives alongside The Office. So it's like it's a, almost like a companion show, similar in tone. Disney's obviously doing that with all these Marvel and Star Wars shows. Hulu's doing this. You know, it's the same thing, you know. Um, but it, to me, the, the bigger piece, too, is it's it's another legacy title. We saw, you know, think of this as a legacy title or not, but Warner Brothers considers Pretty Little Liars to be a, a legacy title. They're bringing that back with a new take, very with a, a small window after the flagship ended on Freeform. And that's obviously coming back. And then for HBO Max, and this is obviously Freeform was a Disney-owned network. Now they're bringing the IP home with a new take. Sex in the City coming back. Dexter 
right? Dexter coming back in, obviously there's a little bit more of a compelling reason. That was a finale that didn't stick the landing because the original showrunner, Clyde Phillips, left and now he's coming back to bring and and basically end it possibly the way he wanted to. I don't know. He was kind of very coy in um, <laughs> talking with us about that. You can go back and listen to that exclusive interview with him from episode 91 back in October. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's really fascinating on a multitude of levels there, Dan. It's it's interesting, and the you know the the one key important thing is this is an entirely separate series, so they're not going to be able to fix, undo, correct, reform, band aid, however you want to put it. The I mean, they're calling of- it a sequel, so I mean, look, if shows like Roseanne, the reboot, undid some of the final season, Will and Grace undid some of the final season. Anything can happen. I don't know that they will do that because that would be an admission from Bayes and Thomas that they didn't stick the landing as as they originally supported. I just think that I just think that they don't really have the terminology for it because it, it's not a reboot, it's not a remake, it's the sequel. Parale- it's parallel too. So sequel works as well as anything. Is else. it going to be set at McLaren's? Probably not, but. Maybe it will be. I don't know. But it's look, it's not going to fix the end of the show if you had problems with the end of the show. And as I will always say, the problems with the end of the show did not magically occur in the finale. The show went off the rails after about four seasons and was spotty for two or three and was genuinely bad for another two or three. So and this is a show that for its first four seasons, I loved. But anyway, so it's not like the finale magically destroyed nine years of pure TV. Uh, and if you think it did, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it. look, why not? It's not like it's it's a good format. And when the show worked, it worked extraordinarily well. And so why not do it? There's no reason why it shouldn't work as a gender reversed version of the same storytelling structure. Maybe somebody will pay attention to the things that annoyed people about the teases and the backwards forwards and the slow reveals. And, you know, are we actually seriously going to have seven seasons of cliffhangers before we meet the girl with the yellow umbrella, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are ways that they can learn things from that show without having to completely undo whatever happened in the finale. You know, just. I, I'm perfectly willing to give it a, a shot because why not? And, and again, you're also going to probably be reviewing it. <laughs> and I'll be probably be reviewing it. But, but I, again, I, I liked the first four seasons of, of how I met your mother a ton. And so I know that this is a show that can work. And maybe the reboot will be inclusive too. So I suspect it probably it better, probably better be. Will be. I, I can't imagine that in 2021 you could have a show as very, very white as as How I Met Your Mother was, among other various limitedly inclusive things. Yeah, no, there's – look, the, the show is a show from a certain generation. That doesn't mean that they couldn't have done better at the time, but they will do differently and better now because, of course, they will. So – they, they can't not. <laughs> Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guest this week is Eric Heiserer, Oscar-nominated screenwriter of The Arrival and the writer of Netflix's winter 2018 blockbuster Bird Box. Heiserer is making his showrunning debut, leading Netflix's ambitious Shadow and Bone, which is based on two different series of books by Lee Bardugo, both the Shadow and Bone trilogy and the Six of Crows duology, which make up the Grisha-verse series. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start at the top. When were you introduced to these books, and how did you become involved in what is clearly a very big fantasy swing for Netflix? This started for me back in January of 2017, when I made myself a uh, New Year's resolution to do more pleasure reading. I discovered that I've been been devouring stuff for possible work, and you bring your work brain to that when you do it. Uh, and I wanted to get back to some some leisure reading. So a friend of mine, Dan, recommended Six of Crows to me. He said, Eric, how would you like to read Ocean's Eleven in a Game of Thrones world? And I said, put it in my eyeballs right now. So I devoured that book. And the other resolution I had that year was whatever I consumed and enjoyed I would make an effort to reach out on social media to that creator, whether it's a song, a comic book, a novel, whatever it is. And so I found Lee Bardugo on Twitter and said, I am having a heck of a fun time with your characters and your world. They're just living rent-free in my head now, and I'm going to go on to the next books. And that was it. Uh, until uh, a year and a half later, when I got a call out of the blue from Netflix that said, Eric, we know you like the Grishaverse books. And I was like, uh, are, are you in the room? Like, how do you, how do you know that? <laughs> but it, Lee had shared with them the tweet, and uh, that's what got me in the room. Well, okay, so if you started with the Six of Crows books, you kind of started at least somewhat either parallel or midstream. So the right. first of the books, of the Shadow and Bone books, is kind of this straight line story about a young woman discovering she has power to save a fractured kingdom, etc. Right. Did you ever give thought to adapting that one straightforward, or did you always know from the minute you got that message from Netflix that you wanted to bring the two book series together? When I first met with Netflix, they only had the rights to the original Shadow and Bone trilogy. They didn't have the Crows duology or uh, the other sequels like King of Scars. And I made the rather bombastic claim that I could not see a way to uh, adapting the show without both the Crows story and the uh, Grishaverse, uh, the original trilogy. And they said, well, we, we don't have the rights to that. And I said, well, I, I can't help you there. And and left the meeting thinking, wow, I got pre-fired from that pretty fast, but let's see how, how, how it goes from here. And sure enough, they called me a couple months later and they said, all right, we've got all our right situations taken care of. Can you come back in? And we were off to the races. I mean, but how 
how was how easy or hard was it to get Lee to understand that as a concept? Because she'd written these separately, and now she you're had. now you're squishing it together. You're you're putting the peanut butter in the chocolate, as it were. Right, and I really didn't understand the the enormity of that undertaking until I had my first conversations with Lee, and she made it clear that while she's very excited that the whole world now has uh, the same home, you can't really tell the stories of Six of Crows and Shadow and Bone at the same time. And to do a time jump in a fantasy world when audiences are fresh to it is is very dangerous and almost foolish. So we wound up exploring what would it look like if we focused on a prequel story for our Crows characters so that we aren't really disrupting the narrative that happens in Six of Crows and that has to happen after Shadow and Bone is complete for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them being that there's a drug introduced called Jerdaparem in Six of Crows that is essentially um, weaponizing Grisha even more. It is an amplifier, but like a hundredfold. And Lee rightly pointed out, you really can't introduce new magic to an audience and then that magic on steroids at the same time because you have no sense of scale. Yeah, that's uh, a, a terrific point. And, you know, and getting to the, the larger piece of this is it, it's such a a vast world, you know, just hearing you talk about the different terms and so many of the books and everything else. But there is a tremendous amount of world building and a lot of different sets, you know, having done the arrival and, and Bird Box, how would you say the budget for this show compares to that of a feature film? I think it's on par. I think we had a little bit more money than Arrival, uh, but we had less money than some other uh, Netflix fantasy shows. It was still a big risk, but we were a chicken hawk of a show and tried our best to look like uh, we were, you know, spending 10 Kruger for every one we had. <laughs> Well, let's go back to to the discussion of bringing up bringing in a power and then the superpowered version of it. This is a lot of mythology and terminology that you are introducing to people in a real hurry. How aware were you at every step of the density of material and how that material would play differently from people who knew this world versus people who were coming in cold? Well, I'd say we did have a gift of genre literacy in this day and age. I think viewers, even non-book viewers, are aware of fantasy tropes. They're aware of the the kind of baggage that you get with that genre in a good way. And the amount of mythology building that the Marvel Universe has done in one aspect and shows like The Expanse have done on the sci-fi sides of things, I think allow audiences who are interested in a new show to roll with that. And secondly, I would say that this is the, this is the, the language of the genre that is and should be accepted the way that if you were to tune into a show set in a surgery ward, common audiences wouldn't understand the jargon for various rare diseases or treatments or operations, but they understand the stakes of the characters. And eventually they might start to pick up on some of that terminology farther down the road, but it doesn't bump them. And the same applies to all these new terms that you're loaded up with when you come into a new fantasy show. It's better to do that than to really make a vanilla version where you, where you strip away everything that is unique to this world 
to just try and find the the generic brand version of it. Yeah, I mean, because that was definitely my experience watching. I have not read the books. I had very little awareness of what the world was. And when I watched, I was like, wow, like you're just immediately thrown in there. It's like, if you don't understand the terminology, you have you piece it together and you're right. It's a very good comparison, you know, with a medical show. I mean, I've been watching Grey's Anatomy for almost two decades now, and I definitely understand that jargon. And yeah. for me, by, you know, halfway through the season, I was definitely picking up and understanding because, you know, you're so fascinated on what this this space looks like and you're just immediately thrown into this world that, that it's, it's incredibly compelling and you want to understand more and you keep letting the, the episodes play because it's like, well, I kind of understand what's going on there. This makes complete and total sense. And this actress is captivating. And, and then it just, you know, you're just, yeah, I was basically, this is just me, my way of saying, I really love the show and I had okay. no idea what, what y'all were talking about from the start. So <laughs> good. Well, on a purely practical level, a lot of the vernacular and language that you guys are using are going to be, is going to be stuff that people are only going to have seen on the page and might not have heard out loud. Right. Were there actually lengthy debates on how to be pronouncing certain things, like even something as small as Grisha versus Grisha? What, you know, what were the conversations you had to have about that? Well, thankfully, we didn't have to get into too many lengthy conversations because we had Lee Bardugo with us every step of the way. And we brought her in every week to the writer's room where we would pitch at her. And that made me very sweaty, but you know, that was a good, that's a good kind of challenge. And our writer's assistant would have just a long tome full of questions for her mostly trivial little details about stuff. What color is this? What's the pattern on that? But beyond that, I would say um, pronunciation was a big thing for all of us. And interestingly enough, we got into deviations on pronunciation in different regions. We really went full nerd on this. I started <laughs> talking about how some people from some part of the world would say it differently just because that's how they grew up. And that wasn't to necessarily insulate us from you know, the right or wrong way to, to say a thing. But um, it was, look, I'm a language nerd. So uh, I got excited about that. That's also how we ended up creating four different foreign languages in, into the film uh, by, invented by uh, David Peterson, who created the Dothraki language. We'll talk to us a bit about those languages. And because and, obviously, this is there's a Russian background to most of this, and then there's a China background to one of the uh, countries, uh, Scandinavian, et cetera. So how were the languages constructed? How similar would a native speaker of Russian find this language to Russian, et cetera? Well, David was very familiar with the books and has been a longtime friend of Lee's. So he came in fairly well equipped to handle the creation of these. But as he and I and Lee all sat down, we really spoke about how we didn't want to feel like we were merely just copying from sort of the written or verbal languages of the the regions where this, some of the story might have been inspired from. We had a, an opportunity here to make sure that what we're building was bespoke. And so, like, the Rothkin really isn't Cyrillic-based. Uh, it is in a uh, it's in a, it's in a sort of a visual space all its own that has touches of that, but also pulls from a few other ideas and and one or two completely fantastical ones that are generated by David. And the same would apply to uh, other languages. We really didn't get into written Shu Han yet. That will be for you know if we're knock on wood privileged to come back for another season, we bring him in to have him do a handful more for us. But you know in Kirch, both written. And uh, the 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 Thierdin spoken, which, like you said, is Scandinavian. There's, it leans a little more on various Scandinavian regions than not for for that language. But um, 
I have, I'm babbling now. So I've, I've, I've lost my other point. Regardless, there, there was a lot of interesting stuff that put went into those. Well, Lee obviously did her own research. Did you go back in and do even more research into kind of the actual sort of national supernatural and historical traditions that she was drawing from just because you had to expand this world beyond what she was going to have done? Yeah, I did ask for her to give me a reading list of you know, inspirational historical books. And um, uh, quite a few of those were Russian historical books, um, Natasha's Dance, uh, a few others. There was a nice uh, syllabus of material for me to read. And what I did find fascinating about those is the, the brutality of our history really comes through. There, you know, the, there were the, the, Shipping merchants, uh, a lot of the the Dutch shipping merchants had apparently a success rate of two out of three ships, meaning that one never came back, and they considered that to be profitable. <laughs> uh, and it leaned into the success rate for you know sending a skiff through the fold. So, okay, the biggest change, obviously, and you've been discussing this already, and you'll have to discuss this for the entire run, is the change in Alina's background and making her half shoe, half Asian, however you want to put it. Was that something you knew you wanted to do immediately? And and what was the attraction to changing the things that make her different within this world? Well, Lee and I had that discussion right away. She wanted to make the the series more diverse because when she first wrote Shadow and Bone, it was her first novel and she was still carrying a lot of um, unconscious assumptions about the fantasy genre from the people that she'd read growing up, which was predominantly white. And she talked to me about how if she were to rewrite it now, it would be more diverse and making the show as a chance to do just that. And for me, it was a matter of, Digging into the themes of the character early on, I realized that one of the core questions that Alina asks herself, asks herself is, where do I belong? And I have a good friend, a writer friend, uh, mixed Asian, who shared with me um, her experience growing up mixed and how that question was at the forefront of her mind, feeling that she never truly belonged to either parent's family and that she would need to find her, her own her own way through and her own identity, and that felt like a more visual way to represent the story of Alina. But I knew I wasn't the person to talk about the specifics of that experience, and so half my writers' room is mixed race, and really helped champion and imprint their own personal uh, voice onto Alina's journey. You know, in, in a larger sense, too, you know, the series definitely has um, a YA feel, you know, the young adult feel to it. Do you and Netflix discuss the show in terms of YA or does that feel too restrictive? And do you possibly have personal versions of YA done right that you like? I would say YA is a genre that often gets a bad rap. Uh, and it may be just because that label has people bring assumptions that, um, it is exclusionary or that it has to talk down to them. But I would say good stories are good stories. And if you 
if you tell that good story, it may, it may still be a YA one, but it can open you up to a larger audience and, and deeper themes and it, you, you go from there. So I didn't come at it thinking that we wanted to make a good YA show as much as we wanted to make a good show. The, the young adult side of things though comes with it because these characters are young. And if you look back at the age of, uh, of people in the 1800s going out in the world and having to make a living and having to find their way, it started much younger. So it felt like what we were having to, to tell is the story of people who had to grow up too quick and are now at their late teens, or early twenties, dealing with the trauma of 40 year olds now. And, and what, what do they do with that? And how do they manage that? How do they mitigate that? You know, and you mentioned that the deeper themes that exist within the series, and it really does feel like um, it's a commentary on scapegoating and othering. Um, were there other more traditional YA themes in play that you initially were or weren't interested in? Yeah, I think one other question that really was prevalent in so many of our young heroes and heroines is, what is within my power? What can I do? How can I really affect the world? And what is beyond my control and finding the borders of that and learning to affect what you can save who you care about, protect what you need and, and then push against the powers that are trying to prevent you from doing any of those. That is a, definitely a YA theme, but it is a theme that runs through so many of our protagonists in this show. I felt it formed the kind of glue to help me tell an otherwise very disparate set of stories for a while with both the, the chosen one narrative, Dan, that you talked about from Shadow and Bone, as well as our group of, our ragtag group of criminals over in Six of Crows. I, I have more questions about the theme, but I want to at least talk about the ragtag criminals a little bit because there is such a different tone that they bring to the piece. And there's almost a zaniness and a comic energy that they have in that side of the story that is obviously not really what is in the Alina side of the story. Were there points at which you were finding yourself blending tones that didn't work and you had to go back and go, okay, this is too zany to intercut with this serious exploration of identity or whatever was happening in the A story? I'd say it's a lovely buffet table of tone when it comes to it, but we did make sure it was a conscious decision to showcase the crows and the Alina story as tonally different. We did that from a number of angles, including score and cinematography. You know, when you're with the crows, uh, you're with a group who don't think about tomorrow. And so you're not going to get any big wide sweeping shots. You're not going to see the sunrise or the sunset. It's a lot of up close grifting. So you get a lot of handheld, you get a lot of whip pans. There's a kinetic, uh, you know, motion to all of those. And then when you're with the Rafkin storyline, it opens itself up. You've got a big orchestra for that. You've got some sweeping shots. You've got a lot of sort of stillness and lockdown 
close press in on Ben Barnes because you've got Ben Barnes. So that's you want to you want to respect the man. And the fun then is when you bring those two tones together, what you can say in your storytelling, whether it's in sort of the dialogue or it's in the camera moves, is you can communicate subconsciously who is in control of the scene by showing what tone has overridden what uh, you know the other characters. And how do you keep those realistically somewhat secondary storylines from feeling like secondary storylines? Because you watch the trailers, for example, the trailers thus far have all been, I believe, Alina-centric. And so people are going to come in thinking, well, that's clearly the A story, which means everything else has to be the B and the C and the D story. But you can't treat them like that, presumably. You can't, no. I think presumably the reason why Netflix chose to lean in on the Alina storyline is because, honestly, it's a lot easier to create a trailer with that narrative. And also, and I appreciate this, so much of the Crows storyline is full of spoilers. And, you know, when you get into what the criminals are doing and why, you sort of, you you show your hand too soon. But we made a conscious choice to divvy up the show 50-50 and allow everybody the elbow room they needed to, to sort of live in their characters. What have you learned about how spoilers work differently on the page from on the screen? So it can be something as small as, in the books, Lee has no problems calling the Darkling the Darkling, the Ben Barnes character. You made the decision that was not something you could do. And he's General Kerrigan for the, uh, for the series. So why, why did you sort of decide certain things played differently in that respect? Well, the moment that we knew that we were going to run around in various timelines and potentially flash back to earlier iterations, uh, it it occurred to us that it's smarter for him to assume different identities if he is to uh, keep his job as the general of the Second Army for however many centuries he can. That requires him to leave at some point or fake his own death and come back once there is a new king installed and the family there has forgotten what he used to look like and can show up again as the next iteration. And if he's using the same name, then it calls, it just causes, it calls too much attention to himself and may give up that con. Uh, so we, we got, we dug into that a little bit. And then the other was the sort of the pragmatic problem of, <laughs> of, Beginning to write other characters addressing him, General Darkling. That doesn't seem right. Uh, is his first name the? Okay, we're we're running into trouble here. How can how can we how can we make this so it feels uh, authentic to the show at this point? So is that just a situation of because no one has to say the lines of dialogue out loud when they're on the page, no one has to consider those particular pieces of minutia you said? Yeah, I think it works really well on the page. I think it's one of those things that you just get used to and then you get to this job and you realize oh oh no we we have a problem here <laughs> you know in, in a larger sense there are so many different outlets netflix including uh included hbo right up there too who have been looking to develop you know more of these big world building genre shows especially since game of thrones ended you know the show is obviously going to get some comparisons to game of thrones because it is a genre show it is a big world building piece but it you know, I, I'm curious, you know, for our, our listeners here, how would you compare, 
shadow and bone to a show like Game of Thrones. You know, is it a fair comparison? Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I would say we are here because of Game of Thrones, just like I would say The Witcher is or other fantasy. It really opened the doors for the kind of risks that we're seeing streamers like Netflix take for, for fantasy that you wouldn't otherwise, just because it is, it is a big investment. And we are a second world fantasy. I've learned the difference there between portal and second world, meaning that Harry Potter is a portal fantasy. It exists in our world, but there's a space that you go to and you enjoy the magic. And second world is an entirely invented space that you live in, which is like uh, Westeros in, in Game of Thrones. Uh, but beyond that, I would say there's there's very little connective tissue between our show and and that one. Uh, certainly, I wish we had the the budget of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone does. <laughs> On that same end, you know, HBO is developing. I think it's like the count is up to five now. Other Game of Thrones prequels. You know, so much of our industry is focused on IP, and you mentioned Marvel. You know, you'd see the the giant world that Kevin Feige built there. Uh, HBO is obviously building out Game of Thrones. There's you know uh, umpteen Star Trek shows. There's umpteen Star Wars shows. When you think about the world of Shadow and Bone, do you have an idea for how many how long the flagship runs? And is this a world that is prone to spinoffs and prequels? And and is this basically what I'm asking is is this a franchise? Netflix is in my ear saying, yes, it is a franchise, 100%. Say yes, Eric. Um, but my concern has always been with this core series. I have to put my full attention on that and make sure that I can nurture it and raise it to be the juvenile delinquent I know it to be. And if I think too much about any other product lines, I don't know, that'll make my head spin. So I am, I'm focusing now on Shadow and Bone and hope that I can just get a second season. I'd be happy with that. Like, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll start there. Um, but, you know, to, to, the, to that end, you know, Netflix obviously came out of the gate strong with The Witcher, and that got a prequel right away after one season. Have you had that conversation with whether it's a Netflix executive or, or with the author? Lee and I have spoken about how many tributaries you can take off of this core story. And she has done a remarkable job. I think she's now written nine or ten books in this, if you include the collection of short stories. So there are so many exciting and charismatic characters that you can follow in the Grishaverse. Netflix really has a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to thinking about either spinoffs or prequels or sequels. Well, going back to the original pitch and figuring out already that you were going to be combining these two parallel book series, how many seasons did you view that it was going to take to cover the current arc that Lee has set out on the page? I didn't see how we could do it in fewer than four. And honestly, quite comfortably, five seasons would be, I think, where we would end our run on sort of the flagship uh, marriage of those two storylines. But um, that seems so far away now. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go back a little bit to the the changing of Alina's identity in in the past few months as we have seen 
this rise in anti-Asian, anti-Asian American violence and hate crimes around the country. Have you, I mean, obviously you aren't going to stop and dwell and go, ooh, this is just like what we wrote. But have you felt in any way an added pressure or responsibility that some of the themes that you brought to the surface here have become more in the public conversation than maybe they were three years ago? It hurts my heart, you know. It hurts my gut too. I I don't like any of it. I you know the Asian representation that we had on the creative team going into this two years ago when we were building the show where our our main protagonist uh, is half Asian. The pain was in talking about the kind of experiences they had and how they considered them evergreen. That this was not something that would go away. Or would uh, or, or would age? We didn't know that it would intensify, of course. Um, but the the hope that they had, and that the rest of us clung to, uh, after hearing a lot of uh, terrible experiences and anecdotally, you know, all of us shared. The writers' room ends up being a big therapy room for for plenty of us. But the hope was having this anchored on a heroine who is made of actual light, you know, who can summon that and provide that guidance in the darkness. We our our hope is that that can be a bit of a salve. It's, it's not going to, I don't, I don't think it's going to change any, anyone's minds out there, but to know that someone is amazing as Jesse May Lee is the the face on these posters and the person you root for are the the hope of our team all of our creative team especially uh the ones who see themselves in her feel like that is that is something that they wanted for a very long time now changing gears just a little bit well significantly i guess because that's much more serious topic obviously um you come from completely a feature background, um, and this is your first television project of of this scope and this duration. How did you know you were prepared to take on the showrunner's responsibilities, and what was the different learning curve for all of the parts of this job title? What came easiest? What came hardest? Well, I've been a bridesmaid in the TV space for a long time. This was, I think, the 13th pilot I've written and developed for someone in about 11 years. So I have been on the bench, ready to be put in the game coach for a lot of it. And I'm married to a TV writer. And so I have been on her sets and shadowed uh, her showrunners and directors a lot uh, while typically writing a feature assignment that I had to turn in. So uh, I had a lot of that experience in my belt. And from that, I certainly had a list of uh, things not to do or pitfalls, but it came down to the type of show running philosophies to adapt or to adopt rather. And because I was taking on the property of an author, like I did with Ted Chang and story of your life, or I did with Josh Mallerman and bird box, but here in the TV space, I am not so much an auteur I'm not, say, Sam Esmail with Mr. Robot. 
but I am a steward of someone else's work. And it's my job as sort of a custodian of the Grishaverse to just help carry that into the new medium. And what that allowed me to do really as a facilitator is to empower the creative team around me uh, and hire people much ta more talented than I am uh, to do their jobs to the best of their ability and help see this through. It isn't a case of protecting my vision per se, as it is in um, empowering everybody to create a vision greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and that works really well up until the time you need someone to blame, in which case it's always me. Like I'm never going to throw anybody else under the bus. Like it's, it's, I'm still responsible for it. However, I can't take credit for so much of what's going on here because it starts with Lee Bardugo and it then spreads to my costume designer, Wendy Partridge, or my set designer, Matt Gant, Ted Ray in visual effects, my writing team, Christina Strange, Shelley Meals, Dagan Frickland, Fanya Asher. I mean, we had people with so many interesting personal stories that really helped shape this. One of my writers, um, as a child, he was a refugee from Sarajevo. His family fled that war, and some of the, the minutiae of that experience got pulled into the Rofkin War. And uh, my job was really a lot of the time to get out of their way. What did Lee put her foot down on? Was there anything? Was there anything where you're like, okay, let's? I'm just. This is just a small, small little change, Lee. Don't worry. Where she said, nope, that I got to draw the line here. <laughs> <laughs> Probably quite a few things, but you go through a million decisions, and just the sheer number of it, just the like the the mailroom full of choices that have to get made every day. It's going to be hard for me to remember anything specific, other than I would say character names. She put her foot down so much on random character names for day players who had two lines of dialogue. That's not Rofkin. Okay, Lee. All right. Just the, give me a name. Just can you come up with like a short list and we'll just pull from that. We're, we're not choosy on this, but, uh, but it was good to have that kind of fervent attitude toward the world because it, it shows that she is the creative historian and she knows where all the bodies are buried and she, she knows exactly what thing, what has inspired her to make certain choices. What was she most excited to see visualized? It was the characters in costume. It was showing up to set and getting to spend time in physical proximity to the crows or Alina and Mal or, uh, Kerrigan, the Darkling, and uh, and seeing her react to that, to understand that there's a real physicality to all of this, that it's not something she's seeing on a tiny little monitor on pics at home now that she is thrust into this space that she created however many years ago. That was the best thing. Yeah. Well, we do like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying right now? <laughs> That's a great one. Uh, I just devoured Alice in Borderland. Uh, I just I found it twisted and really upended my expectations a lot. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Eric. Shadow and Bone is now available to stream on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's major new launches include The Handmaid's Tale Returns on Hulu, Rutherford Falls debuts on Peacock, you just heard our interview about Shadow and Bone that launches on Netflix, and Robin Thede's A Black Lady Sketch Show is back on HBO. 
Dan, what you got this week? Definitely some options. Um, unfortunately, Handmaid's Tale is under embargo until very, very shortly after this podcast goes up. So no review, but I'll have a review up next week of probably the first eight episodes of the long, 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 long delayed, thanks COVID, uh, fourth season. Last week, if you listened to our interview with Sierra Teller Ornelas, you heard lots of details about Rutherford Falls and its uh, rather impressive um, inclusivity in the writer's room and the representational challenges that it faced and how it is definitely braving new ground on television for native representation and all of that. And I think that is unquestionably true. The show premiered this week somewhat strangely in a binge model. I'm not completely sure why they chose to do that and also why they chose to put the entire show up, but critics were only given four episodes. So uh, hard to say necessarily why that was a choice. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a good show. It didn't make me laugh all that much. And I found the Ed Helms part of the show to be a little on the exhausting side in that way that I generally tend to find Ed Helms. He, he's, he's a lot at times. And so I didn't love that side of the show quite so much. On the other hand, the native side, which is set at a fictional tribe in upstate New York, the Minneshonkin Nation, uh, I thought that was truly fascinating and very, very funny. Uh, uh, Janice Meiding, who is the the star who has never had a lead role on a TV show before is terrific and not laugh out loud funny necessarily, but utterly winning and appealing. And as you heard in our interview with uh, Sierra, Michael Gray Eyes, who you've seen on shows like True Detective and a couple other recent dramas, he's, he's a revelation because he's mostly done drama on TV, largely because TV would not be so good at, at comedy with a native perspective and just wouldn't think he was funny. He's extremely funny. He is terrific. And I, I think that that is the side of the show that is worth watching. So, um, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting. Um, if you are not a fan of Ed Helms, it is a, a lot of Ed Helms. That's just what it is. Uh, you know, he does all of his Ed Helms things. He, he plays the guitar. He's, you know, all of what he does. Uh, but yeah, so I, I found it appealing and likable, and maybe the second half of the season is funnier. Uh, speaking of funny, I've watched the first few episodes of the new season of A Black Lady Sketch Show, and as I believe we've mentioned on the podcast before, Robin Thede was our first showrunner spotlight interview, and uh, uh, that was from way, 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 way back when, episode 31. Whew. July uh, 2019, of- the before times. Indeed, we we sat around a, a table in a, uh, a hotel room in Beverly Hills and That's just ETA. chatted like just chatted like normal people in a normal world. How very weird. Um, yes. Anyway, the first few episodes of the new season are, are very good. It, it was really one of my favorite shows of that year. And the ensemble that Robin Thede has built up there is extremely funny. There's been some changeover. Quinta Brunson, for example, is doing a comedy pilot. So she is not here. And she was one of my favorite parts of the original show. But so it goes. Um, yeah, very, very funny. Very good stuff. Didn't do a full review of it, but uh, continue, consider this to be my ongoing uh, endorsement of A Black Lady Sketch Show. Um, and I guess that brings us to Shadow and Bone, 
which you just heard our full interview with the showrunner. And I, I think as you probably sensed from our conversation, if you have not read Lee Bardugo's books, there's a fair amount of world building that you have to catch up on. And it is a little bit exhausting. I don't know that it's appreciably, honestly, more world building than almost any fantasy series you jump in to, though, really. I, I don't think it's appreciably more world building than Witcher or even like Hunger Games. You, you, you figure it out fairly quickly. Uh, there still is a lot of terminology. There's a lot of cultural stuff that you have to figure out because it has its basis in certain bits of Russian history. And, you know, either you <laughs> have some awareness of late czarist Russia or you don't. But if you don't, then it's really kind of a straightforward young woman is basically the chosen one with magical powers narrative. And there have been so many things of that type. And she's in a love triangle with one swoony guy who's her best friend and one swoony guy who's dark and brooding. A lot of very familiar elements. Um, as I mentioned at the start of the introduction, it's based on two different book series by the same author set in the same world. And as preparation, because I'm a, I'm a good critic, I do my homework, I read one of the two series of books. And I thought, oh, okay, I've done my homework. I'm going to totally understand all of this. But half of the story is from the Six of Crows series. And even having the language to understand half of the story, I was pretty much confused and in the dark. Uh, and I don't know that necessarily the two pieces go together all that well. But saying they go together or don't go together, the Six of Crows stuff is a lot of fun. It's, it is as... The showrunner said, it's a heist narrative, and it's a heist narrative basically every episode. And the actors in that side of the story, uh, Archie Renault, Freddie Carter, and Amita Suman, are a lot of fun. And they're they're giving enjoyable, fun performances in their half of the story, whereas the, the main side of the story is a lot of, oh, I'm in love. Oh, I have magical powers. Oh, how do I make fire shoot from my fingers? Uh, it's a lot of kind of familiar YA tropes. So I enjoyed the stuff with the weekly heist, even if I didn't know what the heck language they were speaking the whole time. I mean, it's English, but a lot of terminology. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've seen the first season. It It's guaranteed to get renewed. There is no chance that this is not getting renewed. It, as we talked about with Lord of the Rings at the top of the show, there's a certain amount of budget that has to be amortized, both in terms of the amount spent on the rights, but also lots of pretty pictures, lots of pretty costumes, lots of production design. Lots of sets. Lots of sets. They, they're definitely bringing this sucker back. So just know that the eight-episode first season is going to basically lead you into a second season that hasn't been ordered yet, but come on, it's going to be ordered. I, I don't think there's any chance that Netflix will not be able to ring three to four to five seasons out of this, depending on how many they want to. So... Uh, if this is your jam, I think you will probably enjoy it. If it is not your jam, you will probably know in about 10 minutes that your brain is about to explode. Um, <laughs> my, ed my editor, John Frosch, attempting to read my review, his brain exploded attempting to read my review, and he will not be watching this show. And I think that's a an entirely 
reasonable reaction. I, I think that you know if this is a genre that you like, and you will know very quickly if this is a world that you wish to plunge yourself into and maybe Google to learn what the terminology is and all of that. And you'll just as similarly know if you want to go watch something else. Yes. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by one of my favorite showrunners, Pose co-creator and showrunner Stephen Canals. Looking forward to that. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, Write a little reviewy thing, because it does help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to chat with you, to uh, hear your comments, concerns, praise. We like that. It's always nice. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, however, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 